I'm Jeff Cohen. Chava Avner left Illinois as a secular Jew and came back fully observant. Let's just say there were some big twists and turns between then and now that led her to the lifestyle she proudly leads today. Chava is here today to share her journey, as well as how her prior secular background helps her connect among Jews of all different levels. Chava, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's an honor. So let's get to know you a little bit. And even before we get into your story, tell me a little bit about your parents' background, where they're from, how they met, you know, where they stood religiously to set the stage for your journey. My grandparents are immigrants from Scotland, which is odd for people to hear about. You know, it's not usually you hear that. And so my mother grew up in a different kind of household than just basically American Jewish. They were musicians. And so she was very enthralled with and engrossed with her Scottish and, you know, British heritage. And that was her focus. And Judaism was cultural. We did have a Seder. Sometimes we went to Rosh Hashanah, but they didn't observe Judaism. They had a holiday. They didn't go to synagogue. Okay, so you have two Jewish parents. They bring you into the world. Where are you born and raised, and how would you characterize your own family in those early years? My father also was born with very little knowledge, even less than I would say my mother. So we're talking about two Jews in Chicago who have very little to offer when it comes to Jewish education. Okay, so then you come into the picture. So maybe you can sort of set some context of your own family. How many siblings do you have? You just mentioned Chicago. So is that where your journey begins, where the the early part of your life starts off? Yes. We were born here and I was raised here. My Jewish life did not start here in Chicago. I had an older brother and I have a younger brother. I'm the middle child. My older brother was born with disabilities that they could not diagnose. And this was back in the 60s when there was very little knowledge or support systems for the family, for the child, for the siblings. And my parents did a great deal of work. They were really heroic trying to help my brother and get him the support and the surgeries, medical treatments, social opportunities that he needed. But I grew up, my mother said she raised us like twins because I was 18 months behind my brother and I had a typical development. So when I would do something, he would do it. So I was very entwined with my older brother, helping my parents care for him. We had a two-level which doesn't make sense now. When I look back at this situation, my brother couldn't walk, so he had to use a wheelchair. So we used to walk him to the stairs and then lay him down, and then he'd slide down the stairs. It sounds crazy. My parents let this happen, but he'd fall on the bottom of the floor. We'd pick him up, stick him in the wheelchair, and that's me at five, six, seven. Do you remember how you felt about it as a kid when you're thrust into this caretaking role? I could see you feeling like proud to be able to be a helper and to feel like you're doing something good for your family, or I could see you feeling like it's taking away from you having like a traditional normal childhood. Do you remember how you felt about the situation? Yes. It was taking away from me having a typical childhood. I felt very different from other people and I felt there was something with us. Other people did not have this. Not one of my friends had this, you know, a brother who was developmentally disabled. And um, there was never a moment where I thought normal. With CP, there's different ways that it expresses itself. So I couldn't walk. He had a hard time speaking. We used to change his bedpans at night because he couldn't always get out of bed. My younger brother and I were doing a lot of this care, as well as my parents. But it was normal for my mother to send me up to take care of Alan and get Alan out of bed and downstairs. And so that did not feel normal. And I did wish that I did not have it. There's another part of your history that you've described so far that sounds a little bit different. I'm thinking about on breaks. My family always went to Florida to see the grandparents, but you mentioned Scottish roots in one of your earlier answers. So was that also changing kind of the dynamic within your family compared to what maybe the 
usual Jewish American lifestyle was like? Yes. I heard people in my community, friends who were going up to some resort in Wisconsin. That's where a lot of them went. And to go to Florida and to go to Disney World, I mean, how exciting. And I wanted to go and we would get on a plane and we would go to Europe, which sounds you know, wonderful now, but not when you're in middle school and in high school. Yes, we went to visit my cousins and that was enjoyable, but it wasn't a great experience. It wasn't a great trip for me at the time. We went to France and to Italy. We went to Switzerland. That's what my mother wanted to do. And my father followed along. He supported her. So let's go a little bit more into the Judaism in those early years. You've said a little bit about what was going on in the home, but were you going to Hebrew school? You mentioned something about having a Seder here and there. Like, What was your family specifically doing in terms of their Judaism? I was enrolled in Hebrew school at a Reform synagogue, as were my brothers. And in fourth grade, when they got the Betamax, if you remember that before the VHS, and we got the movie Grease and we put it in, I'm sitting there after school with my older brother who was obsessed with it. And we're watching it. And my mother says, it's time to go to Hebrew school. And I said, I'm not going. I'm watching Greece. And so she said, if you don't get out of that chair and get up, you're not going to have a bat mitzvah. And I said, that's okay with me. Fine. And I watched Greece with my brother. And there went Hebrew school, fourth grade, done. And there went the bat mitzvah too. She followed through on that threat. Yes. And I didn't want one. It wasn't important to me. I didn't, I saw people having it. And I think if I look back, I might've been a little envious, but not because of the bat mitzvah, what it means, just the experience or the party or just being like everybody else. So no bat mitzvah, but both my brothers had a bar mitzvah. My older one had a special needs bar mitzvah. He didn't say much, but my younger one did. So then continuing your story beyond like those bat mitzvah years when you're past 13, middle school into high school, is Judaism playing any role in your family's life during that time period? No, it's playing no role. And I live in currently, I grew up in Northbrook, which is got a very large percentage of Jews. I think it was 40%. It could have been 50% when I was growing up. So I was surrounded by Jews. Those were my friends. And that was the extent of it. There was no knowledge of Kashrut, no knowledge of Shabbat. We did not fast on Yom Kippur. I saw people bringing peanut butter and jelly matzah sandwiches, and I didn't know what those were for. We did have a Seder when I was younger, and then that left as my grandparents got older. We stopped going to synagogue in Rosh Hashanah when I was middle school. And so it had no part, played no role in my life. And I knew some of the kids in the USY, and I thought they were nerds. I used the word dork when I was younger, but that's how I viewed a Judaism that had some kind of expression. I can relate to what you were saying because I grew up in Rockland County, New York, in a town called New City, which was next door to Muncie. And so I would see Orthodox people because it was the adjacent town and I would see the outfits they were wearing and it felt so foreign to me that it almost was like a completely different religion. I didn't even equate it as like another version of Judaism. It just felt so different to me. And the way you're describing seeing people were going deeper into religion, it was like a negative to you at that point when you didn't fully understand what it was. I didn't understand for a while. I had a friend in my dorm my freshman year bring me apples and honey somewhere in September. And I said, okay, thank you. And she was from Des Moines, a Jewish girl from Des Moines, Iowa, because I went to University of Iowa. And I didn't know what they were for. I might have asked. And she said, it's apples and honey for Rosh Hashanah. And I had obviously no awareness of that, a blank face. And you just started talking about college, a couple of little anecdotes here and there. So it sounds like maybe Judaism is on the back burner during that time of your life. So what are you focused on study-wise and what you think you're going to do career-wise at that point? 
I didn't have a study and a focus. I went to college because that's what you do from the North Shore. But I was not prepared for college. I wasn't ready. I do think part of my family's history and the chaos and confusion and, you know, the challenges of that made me, I was not ready. So I did go and I studied sociology and social work. I graduated with a degree in nothing and unemployable. And I wish that I had gotten the guidance counseling that I needed. They could have said, listen, this is beautiful. This is wonderful what you're studying to understand people and communities. You won't get a job, but we really like what you're doing. And so I graduated without any memorable experiences of college. I didn't really enjoy it. I had to transfer in the middle. I transferred to University of Illinois, graduated from there, and then I got a job with my dad. Now, you just used a phrase, the chaos of your childhood. Now, you shared that there was the illness going on with your brother. Is there more to that phrase, chaos of your childhood, or is it predominantly because of this medical situation, how that infiltrated your childhood experience? Yes. I have a parent who was a gambler and not a stable business person. And so we jumped from a lot of money and being those wealthy North Shore Jews, North Shore of Chicago, where I grew up, and then it was gone. And then we had to scramble. When I was a first year out of college and working for my father, the company went bankrupt. And so I lost my job, which sounds humorous because I worked for my dad, but I actually did lose my job and I wasn't able to stay at home because my parents were, I don't know if you've ever seen a bankruptcy, but it is not fun. And so you're running through every area of your home and you're taking whatever you can and hiding it and so that you can then deal with the lawyers and they won't come get your stuff. And then my parents were um, highly suggested to move to a different part of the country. So they left. And that kind of chaos from you know, having a, one parent who is not a stable business person, and I don't think he really saw reality. And my mother was so engrossed in being an Anglophile, so she went to get her master's and then her PhD in British history at Northwestern University. So she's not bringing in the bucks. You know, she's following her dreams. My younger brother and I were not thrilled with that either. You know, I, I didn't love that she was downstairs writing her dissertation all the time, but that's what it was. You just said that your parents leave the Illinois area. So where does that leave you? Where does your story go from that point? It seems like that would be like just a really challenging, what's going to happen next whirlwind part of your life. And it's already tricky enough when you're in your early 20s trying to figure out who you are and what you want to be. My parents also did say when I was trying to help them pack up and it was the first few days, they said, listen, Wendy, (laughs) you can't live with us. You can't stay here. You know, you don't have your apartment anymore. You don't have an income, but you can't stay with us either. It's too much to watch. So now I have to find somewhere to live. So I actually lived in the basement of our lawyer's house, the bankruptcy lawyer. And I had earlier in that year, before all this started, run into an acquaintance from high school who had moved out to Los Angeles. It was one of those hashkacha pratis moments that I didn't know then, but you know. And she, my friend Stephanie, told me that she lived in Los Angeles and we, you know, we connected. And one of the experiences she was sharing with me is that she went to a cult and she learned the Torah. She whispered Torah. And I didn't know what that meant. And that was the beginning of an option to move to Los Angeles and get out of Illinois. As it was somewhere to go, because I had a friend who told me about something that was interesting. And I did travel. I, I went out to visit her. I was there for a week. I went to one of those Jewish classes that she called it. And so when I came back and it was apparent that it was really bad and they were losing everything, I just thought, well, I guess I'm going to L.A., I just want to clarify one thing. When you gave the answer saying that it was like a cult teaching Torah, I've interviewed a lot of people when they're first becoming religious and their parents get wind of what they're doing. The parents say, oh, you're getting pulled into a cult. So was that her word or your word when she described there's this like class that she's taking out in LA? That was my friend's word. 
I wouldn't have even known it. I didn't experience it, so I couldn't have even named it. I just, I was also running away. I was also getting away, and there was a place to go. And I had that one experience when I visited her. When you don't grow up with any religion, and not even such a strong foundation in like a secular belief, or I was an agnostic, I was I just wasn't anything. So to hear about a religious experience does sound, I don't know if it's frightening, but it's odd. Like, why would I do that? That was how I showed up. Why would I do this? But I did it. I mean, I went. And the program that I went to, once I moved out to Los Angeles, and it was a, a weekly social experience. And they had like tables and there were five guys on one side of the table and five girls on the other. And there were questions in the middle that I, of course, did not read or care about. And we were all talking. And then a rabbi got up and gave a summary of what we were learning. And then the program was done for the evening. So in your mind, this is a more of a social experience and you're thinking, well, this is fun. It's guys and girls together. It's like a mixer. Maybe I'm going to meet someone as opposed to being into the religious aspects of it. Yeah, it was so much fun. There were cute guys around and a lot of socializing and we went out afterwards. And so for me, that was a social life that happened to have a class at the beginning or, you know, it was questions. I wasn't interested in that. And what are you doing career-wise at that point? You, you pick up and move to Los Angeles, so I understand you're getting involved in this class, but how are you making money? Are, are you living with this friend or you find somewhere else to go? I actually bounced around. I lived with different people for uh, six months because I didn't really have a stable job. And then I got a job in event planning, which is what my father's business was and what I learned to do for all my years growing up, main stage entertainment and incentive travel and event planning. So I did find a job in a small little cute little event planning firm in Los Angeles and traveled all over LA and San Diego doing events. So now going back to the classes that you were going to, when does it start to turn a little bit that, oh, there's more here than just the social scene. I'm going to start listening a little bit to the message of the rabbi and maybe there's something here I want to pay attention to. Well, we had a strong friendship group from this 20-something program. And one guy, I don't remember his name, but he said, hey, I'm going to a different program, a different class. You want to come with me? And I said, yes. And so that's when we went into one of the Asia Torah rabbi's homes. And I sat there and there was an actual class that was teaching for people who were interested, not just a social program. I wasn't really listening. I didn't understand it. I have a funny story that I... They're talking, talking, talking. I have no idea what they're talking about, but I hear the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're telling me that these are the fathers, which didn't make sense at the time. And then they're saying things about Hashem. And so I turned to my friend and I said, wait, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Hashem. So there's four fathers. That's how I heard it all. That's the level where I was. Okay, they cleared it up for me right then. <laughs> now, you said this was at Aish. Did you understand that this was... Orthodox Judaism? Or at that point, were you just thinking, oh, I went to this other Jewish class. This is a different Jewish thing. I'm not really thinking about levels. Let me step just one step back. Within a couple classes, I was interested. What was being shared about Judaism and morality and living an ethical life and knowing that the work that we did on this earth wasn't for nothing. I used to be so scared when I was growing up. I couldn't make sense of it. And maybe this is the kind of childhood I had. But if you would do all of this work and then you die and you're in the ground, I, I, I couldn't. It made me so nervous. So little by little, the messages that I was hearing about what this thing called Judaism is, little by little, I kept coming back. Within a year, I was already starting to put the pieces together, the blocks that build a foundation. But I also went to an Orsameach program. I also went to Machon Shlomo. I was bouncing around. And then I did 
become aware that it was Orthodox. I did. I have some cousins who became religious. I didn't know what that meant at the time, but my mother was very mad at me for going to these classes. And she yelled at me one time through the phone, don't you dare become a fanatic like your cousin Susie. Like, mom, I'm not going to become a fanatic. I'm not going to become religious. But I was starting to learn what it meant to have religious Jews. The way you describe that conversation you had with your mother, I would think you actually believed at the time that you were just trying to get an education on what it meant to be Jewish. You weren't thinking it's more than an education. It could be a lifestyle. So you probably believed when you said to your mom, of course, I'm not going to become religious. But as you keep coming back to these classes, do you now start to realize there are actually people who take these learnings and live based on those learnings? And it's not just about taking a class to learn something for educational purposes? Yes. After about six months, I, it was a slow start of that kind of awareness. I, I remember I used to keep a skirt in the back of my car. If I was coming home and somebody called and said, we're going to this class, I had an option, you know, I could throw the skirt on over my, my jeans. Yeah, there was a shift where I, I, I remember being taught what the Shema was, like really inside listening, learning, and that pushed me I had other experiences. I went to, you know, what are the, the codes of the Torah, the discovery codes? I don't remember what the name of that program is called, but where they prove to you in the Torah that there are codes in there of messages for the future. Where I was back then, I remember coming out and saying, oh, that's so interesting. They're probably true. Going to go get a cheeseburger now with my friends. Like, it, there was no connect. But after enough time, and this is, it became more individual learning, going to people's homes. They had me come for Shabbat. I, of course, left in the middle. They're talking to me about marriage, about the future, about how do you raise children, what it meant to be ethical, to do the right thing. I obviously learned very early on about Shmirat HaLashon. I, I, these were uh, answers that I probably was looking for in my early, you know, in my childhood and in high school and college, and they weren't there. And this was there. This was the answer. When I speak and I tell people about my story, I do say that I was a loser, which doesn't sound so good, right? And I was lost, which is also true. Because I lost things. I wasn't shown things. They were lost. Part of what belonged to my neshama and belonged to me as a Jew were lost. And so I went and I found them. So did you start to become aware after six months or so, I'm going to have to make some choices about how I'm going to live and what I'm going to do with the information that I'm learning? I had some friends who were Israeli, were hanging out with them a lot, and I stopped going to classes because that was more fun. One of the women that I was learning with called me around, you know, the high holidays, and she said, you got to come back. Where'd you go? So I went back. And that going back after taking a break to hang out and go to the beach and try surfing and stop going to class, these are, you know, they're Jewish Israelis, obviously. That made a difference because once I was there... Well, they were going for the hard sell. I will tell you, they were doing the push that, that maybe we don't do these days when in Jewish education or trying to show people what their heritage is. But in the early 90s, there was definitely the message that if you don't concentrate on this, if you don't take this seriously and consider going to Israel, you will not get this life that you're seeing. You cannot get this life if you're doing it half here, half there. And then, of course, the push to Israel, which I, I say, of course, because that was the push early on probably still pushing that today. But if you do not pick up and go to Israel, you will not get this fully. And because my ties to Los Angeles were not strong, my job was not important to me. I was okay with putting all my stuff back in the trailer. My parents had sent it to me a year and a half ago. And I put it back in the trailer, called my parents, say, I'm sending it back and you're paying for it. And I left, went to Israel. Not committed yet. Just going to try. See what this really, really means. And so I went to Neve Yerushalayim. That's where you go. I was uh, 26. 
How long was that ticket for when you went? When you say you were going to give it a try in Israel for a week, for a month, an open-ended ticket, what did you think you were going to do there? I was told that you go for a year. So I bought a round-trip ticket, and uh, I had no idea what I was going to. We had been to Israel for my brother's bar mitzvah in 1983, and so I had that one experience of, you know, going with my family from one place to the next and seeing important sites in my brother's bar mitzvah. But that's all I had of Israel. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about Israel aside from that trip. And so you end up staying for a year and you're you're taking classes. Are you living an observant life while you're there? Or are you progressing towards that? What's going on religiously during that time frame? I was progressing, but it's slow. I was in the beginner program. I lived in the dorms. I made a lot of friends. So that was fun. We were all going through it together. We were all in the Mechina program. You know, it's like, I think it's it's before step one, I called it. There was a step one and we were before <laughs> step one. It's like a cabbage, like you peel a layer or a layer, an onion, it keeps coming and coming. And, you know, so all these classes, I actually didn't know where to put it all. And I also was having a fabulous time around Israel outside of seminary. I mean, come on, like there was so much to do. So it was experience as well as a Jewish journey when I was there. So you end up staying for a year and then come back to Los Angeles? Or where do you come back to at the end of the time frame? I stayed for a year. I didn't know what to do. I thought it was long enough. I was Shomer Shabbos then. And I was dressing tzniut. And I, I knew that this was the right thing to do. But I moved back to Chicago, tried to find a job, lived with my grandparents, my nana and papa. That didn't work out. And so I moved to New Jersey within six months because that's what you do when you're Jewish and young and you need to date because you need to get married. You have to go to New York. That's what they say. Go to New York. So I did. I lived in New Jersey and that started the next chapter of what people do, or at least that's what I did. So at that point, you think you're going to establish a life in New Jersey, be observant, find a husband there. Is that the game plan at that time? And is that what plays out or things change again? The game plan was to move there and you know, we were dating like in Shiduchim, as we say, and I was definitely going to get married right away, but that didn't happen. I was not, I did not get married so quickly. So I did bounce around in jobs there too, within my comfort zone. I did some event planning. I did work at Asia Torah in Manhattan, the outreach center there for a couple of years. That helped strengthen me because I was learning and growing while working, but my jobs were never settled. So I didn't see myself settling in New York or New Jersey and Jeff, I actually didn't have plans for myself, and now I'm 28. But I am definitely religious, but no, there was no plan. So what does happen? Even if you don't have a plan, something will happen next in someone's story. You're, you're in New Jersey. You stay there or you don't? What happens next? Well, when you don't get married, you get nervous. My job is not that great. I'm not progressing. And I think about after two years there, I became aware that my insides did not match my outsides. So my outside is I don't drive on Shabbat and I don't use a phone, right? I don't cook and I wear a skirt and I've got my stockings on and my inside is not baked. I mean, I didn't do that much learning. It starts to slip if you don't keep it up. Why did I jump into this? I'm not married. That's what they told me was going to happen. I don't have a great job. And again, it's this story where a friend takes you to see someone speak. So one, a teacher who had a school in Yerushalayim, a different school, was in town speaking and I was so interested in what she was saying. She was the right kind of teacher for me. She had a small new school, Holly Pavlov, who's now Chaya Chava Pavlov with Sharim in Harnof. And because my life was not rooted there, and again, not so meaningful, I have no problem picking up. I already have a lot of experience picking up, throwing stuff in the trunk, storing it with someone and leaving. 
So I did. I went back to Israel. Again, parents not very happy. That was a big change in my life. Just sit and learn inside the Torah, getting skills, learning how to read Rashi, taking a Chumash class where you had to actually understand what Rashi and the Moforshim are saying. And so I then started to have an even deeper dive into the internal part. You know, the deeper part in that was a year and a half back in Israel. So if I'm following the timeline, that puts you at almost 30 after you do this year and a half? Correct. Were you also dating while you were in Israel, thinking maybe I'd meet someone there and stay there? Or were you thinking, I'm going to come back? Like, where do you think your life's going to be at this point? I don't know where my life's going to be. Of course I was dating. Isn't that, that's what you do. I mean, dating a lot. And I did meet several people who were never leaving Israel. And I tried. And the nerves of leaving my parents. After a year and a half, I went home. I went back to America. Did I tell you that my brother had an accident and was killed? No. This happens while you're in Israel the second time? Yes. I'm in Israel for my second time. I'm going through the, the, the Yom Tovim again, you know, in Israel and came out of Sukkot, had a wonderful class about what Simcha really means. And I woke up the next morning because it's the first time that I had, was going to see Birchas HaKonim at the Kotel, you know, first day of Cholamayid. And the phone is ringing in the dorm, and it's 6 o'clock, and it's ringing and ringing and ringing, and you think, who's calling? And it stops ringing, ringing, ringing. So somebody answered and said, this is for you. And it was my younger brother. And he said, Wendy, Alan's gone. So I said, well, go find him. What do you mean he's gone? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it went several rounds. So my brother explained it to me another way. He um, was riding, zipping around, you know, on his electric wheelchair, and what happened was... There was a construction site, and it had fences up, but it did not have any signs. And so my brother was riding without the awareness that someone would have. And I don't know if anybody without a developmental disability would have known either. But he drove right through the um, on the sidewalk. One of the dumpster trucks were coming out at the same time. And so they, um, well, he was killed by the truck. I flew home that day in shock on the plane. And then it was in Boulder, Colorado. That's where my parents lived. We didn't have Jewish names growing up. So when I landed, I got in the car and they said, well, we're going to name him. We're going to give him a Hebrew name. We're going to name him Amitai because his name was Alan. So they put the A with the A. And I said, no, we're not. We're going to name him Simcha because he died on the second day of Simcha's Torah. And I just had this class from Rabbi Jeremy Kagan about the true meaning of Simcha. And so I went and I said, I'm going to speak. And nobody else could speak in my family. So I spoke about Alan. and. His name was Amitai Simcha. And so that I stayed home for two weeks. We didn't really have Shiva because it's during Yantif and because there's only two religious people we know. We had to go build a sukkah. And um, I stayed for a week and a half. My parents told me to leave. This is no place for you. They were just starting to deal with it. So I went back to Israel. I'm just sorry to hear this because it was a tough enough life already, not just for him, but also for everyone around him. The way you described your childhood as a caretaker, and now you have to deal with death within the family. It just does sounds like a lot to deal with as a family overall. So I'm just sorry to hear you tell that story. I'm sorry too. I'm sorry it happened. My parents were broken. But I went back to Israel and I was there. My parents are alone. And so I went back to Colorado for a year and then I moved back to New Jersey. And so now you're into your 30s. You're living fully observant. I was just thinking what you just went through with your family and described with your brother. I could see that leading to you having questions of faith and tough conversations with Hashem. Like, how did you handle that? And what's your life like at that point? 
I went to Rabbi David Gottlieb, who was teaching. I liked the way he taught. I told him the story, and I said, what was the point? What was the point? He said to me that um, my brother's purpose was finished. He was 32, so of course we point out that, he, you know, Lamed Vez, like a lave, a heart. And he did what he needed to do here, and Hashem said it was finished, and it was completed, and he, that was that. And I was okay with that. I was never upset. I was never angry. I guess it just made sense. It soothed me. And because my growth and my observance and my constant learning, as I've shared, I mean, I was never just working. I was living and learning Yiddishkeit. And I believed in a Kaddish bar. I believed in Hashem. I believed that God ran the world and that God was involved in, in my life. God was involved in my older brother's life. So it was not hard for me to accept that. It didn't take the pain away. It was another block in the building of my faith, my amuna. Hashem gave this to me. You know, Hashem plucked me out of whoever was living the way we were living when we were growing up and said, you, Wendy, Chava, now, I'm taking you and you're going towards this. And I went. So I was okay with that. I was I, not okay. You know, I, I could handle it. It did not question my faith. Now, I know from reading about your background that a special someone does eventually come into your life. So is this the time frame as you're in kind of the early, mid-30s when you finally do come across the person that's going to be your soulmate? Yes. I uh, was 35. I had a Rav that I was very close to, a Rav and his, you know, his wife in Muncie, New York. And so I would see them often, and they were really helping guiding me through Shidduchim. I was dating somebody else, and somebody suggested a man from Chicago who was a widower. But I was dating somebody else. And my husband did not was not interested in using a shadchan, so he just called me. So you want to go out? I'm going to be in New York next week. I'm going to the Christmas tree lighting ceremony at Rockefeller Center with my work. So does any of that go together with the way that I'm living my life? <laughs> no, I do not want to go out with you. I'm dating someone else. I'm dating someone else. And my husband says, well, are you engaged? No, I'm not engaged. Well, why can't you go out with me? So it's just too much. So I said no. And then I wasn't dating that guy anymore. And I went back to my Rav. I'm like, okay, now what? Now where do we go? He said, maybe we should try that older guy, the widower. Let's go back and revisit that. And so he called again and we talked and he was going to be back in town. He was um, fine, you know, for his business. And um, we met. We went on our first date. I was 36. I liked him. I liked him right away. So after three months, we got engaged. And what was his religious background compared to yours? You've been on this journey from originally being in Illinois as a secular Jew, you've gone all the way to observant Jew. You're a completely different person. My husband grew up Shomer Shabbos in Queens. He's a bit older than me, so it's a different time. You know, it's in the, he grew up in the 60s, and um, his paternal grandparents were religious, so we will call him from, from birth. He grew up religious. He didn't go to yeshiva. He's learned on his own. He's like a self-made learner, I would call him. And one of the things I said in the introduction is how you feel like you're in this unique position to bridge the secular world and the observant world because you've lived in both. So how are you doing that today? Is it something career-wise or volunteer-wise that you feel you play this role? It's volunteer. I teach women who are within my age group. We have classes every week. It's about Jewish identity. It's about mitzvot, who is God, which is not an easy one, but uh, it ends up becoming mostly a question and answer session. I am about mitzvah tutor, so I tutor at a school, a school for unaffiliated families. So they're all coming in, as you say, secular, without a synagogue. So I'm about mitzvah tutoring there, and so I'm doing the same kind of work, which is explaining the foundations of Judaism 
I was a momentum unlimited to Israel, the, the trip that takes women to Israel. I had led that trip four times. And so I've met many women. And um, I can see now that when I entered into learning at 24, the why and the how could this be, and that there was an answer, that there was a Masorah, that there was, that this Judaism belonged to me and nobody told me about it. That never leaves me. You know, at my age, I will constantly be, wow, I didn't know that. You know, is that where that comes from? It's so exciting to me. So that excitement of those beginning stages and constantly being wowed and how did this happen? That is where I teach from. And it resonates with my friends because they're also in that same place that I was. Wait, that's what that means? I never knew that. I never knew that. I'm like, of course you didn't because no one told you and I'll tell you about it. So I say that I'm a cultural translator, which would be the best description of how I work because I can speak secular and I can speak from. So I can understand where there's a misunderstanding on either side. And now we don't understand. And I'm not sure if I want to do this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Let me, uh, I'm going to clear this up. You know, it's extremely fulfilling and very necessary, I believe. I'm curious, as kind of a closing question for you. When you look back on Wendy, who became Chava, when you were the secular Jew, what you thought about Judaism based on the, the limited information you had about it. How do you feel now looking back at how you approached and thought about Judaism as a kid versus what you know now? I'm not bothered about my childhood and my not knowing about Judaism. It doesn't bother me. And I'm very grateful that I started relatively young and single, and I had the freeness to jump around to Israel. I never wake up regretting my choice. Never, ever. I may not have an easy day. I may not have an easy day with my Yiddishkeit. My imuna, my belief does falter sometimes. Got to wait it out, you know. But I am, I wouldn't want any other life. I want this life. And I, I, I'm so grateful. And it's always in such awe that this happened to me, that I got to do this. Well, what I love about your story is that it came full circle physically because you ended up back in the same place where your journey started, but you came back a completely different person. So there's been so much growth that comes through really clearly in our story. So Chava, I just want to say thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. This has been very nice. Thank you for having me. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.